On September 12, 1995, McKay Everett disappeared from his home in Conroe, Texas. There was no sign of forced entry. It was just as if McKay had walked out of his own free will. And to this day, McKay's mother, Paulette, feels that justice was never truly served. Ransom is available now. Listen at ransompodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just a reminder for you, this Thursday, we will be releasing another bonus Q&A episode. So please call in to 470-300-4915 with any questions you have. And remember to tune in on Thursday. The following program contains distressing content and graphic details regarding suicide. This may be triggering for survivors of suicide loss and those with lived experience. Please proceed with caution. If you're in crisis or having thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text TALK to 741-741. For more resources, please visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention's website at afsp.org slash find support. When I got back, I opened the door and I noticed he wasn't on the couch. And I was like, all right, you know, maybe they fix things, you know, because like, like I said, they argued, but they'd be fine in an hour. Mm-hmm. I said, maybe they fix things, you know, he's laying in the bed with it. So I walked in there, she's passed out on the bed, he's not in there. And I was like, you know, maybe he's in his brother's, you know, his brother's room is upstairs. I believe that's his brother's room, the one that go upstairs, that bedroom. Yeah. I was like, maybe he's up there laying on that bed. So I walked up there, I didn't see him. Well, I noticed the bathroom light was on. So I kind of knocked on the door. I said, you all right? You straight? Because, like, you know, I was yelling his name. You know, I was like, Christian, Christian, where you at? Where you at? Well, you know, she ain't even moved. Whitley still laid out on the bed. I said, Christian, Christian. He asked me, you know, but that's why I was walking through the house. Like, but, you know, I knocked on the bathroom door. I said, you all right? He didn't say nothing to me. I knocked again just a little bit harder. I was like, you okay? He didn't say nothing to me. I was like, yeah, that's weird, you know. Like, maybe he's you know, maybe he's taking a shower or something, you know. Like, maybe he's just doing something he can't hear. So I walked downstairs. I went to Whitley. I was like, Whitley, he didn't say nothing to me. You know, like, he's not answering me. I was like, we need to check on him. Well, like, this is what blows my mind. Whitley was like, I guess, dead asleep. I'm assuming, because like, I kind of shook her a little bit, she didn't move, I said, Whitley. I shook her, and that's when I said, we need to check on me. She didn't say nothing, she just said, you know, like, mumbled, and she kind of rolled over and like, went back to sleep. That's when I walked back up there, and you know, I knocked on the door a little bit harder at the time, I said, Christian, you okay in there? I didn't say nothing to me. I was like, man, so, you know, something ain't right. So I knocked a little bit harder. I said, Christian, are you all right in there? He didn't say nothing back to me. I was like, man, I got to check on him. When I opened the door, I looked like my head was down, and I could see his boots. And I looked up; he was hunched over the bathtub. And I knew that I knew he wasn't alive.
You may have already pieced this together, but the clip you just heard is from an interview with Dylan Swearingen. It occurred just weeks after Christian's death. The interview was conducted by investigators hired by the Andriacchios, who I've mentioned before, the same ones who interviewed Matt and Jet Miller, as well as the Best Buy employees. While this audio was obtained back in 2014, the Andriacchios never received a copy of it. It was just shared with us recently when it was discovered that the interview had been lost in the initial transfer of files from the investigators to the family. And while I'll point out that that's a tragic mistake, the important thing is we have it and we're gonna play it. But before that, it's important that we lay some groundwork because if you're following along, trying to form an opinion of what you think happened on February 26th, we're at a fairly critical juncture. If you remember where our last episode left off, I challenge you to really consider what Dr. Arden had to say about the time of death. Because while his ultimate belief that the manner of death was homicide and the scene was staged as a suicide is critical, we cannot gloss over his other point of emphasis, which is that the death occurred hours before the 911 call was placed at 4.45 p.m. I want to read a section directly from his report to clarify. The photographs from the scene and from the morgue strongly suggest that Mr. Andriacchio was in well-developed rigor mortis at the scene. The time to develop strong rigor mortis varies, but typically requires at least several hours and is consistent with a significantly longer interval on the order of four to 12 hours. The morgue photographs indicate that he was transported in the body bag in essentially the same position he was found, namely bent at the waist and at the knees, face down. The photos also demonstrate that he had fixed liver mortis on the back of his right leg, especially on the calf, which is totally inconsistent with his positioning at the scene, in which his right calf was facing up, so blood should have drained away from that area by gravity. The time for fixation of liver mortis is highly variable, but is on the order of hours. He had to have been positioned with his right calf facing down for some period of time for liver mortis to appear and then fix on that surface. In addition to indicating that his death occurred much earlier, this shows that his body had been moved. In conclusion, his time of death was much earlier than the 911 call, calling into question the account given by the people who made that call. That change in time of death becomes vital when you recognize that up until this point, everything we know about that day has been viewed through the lens that Christian died around 3.45 p.m., the time listed on the death certificate. While Arden could not give an exact time to the hour, he is confident that it would have occurred well before 3.45. And we were able to narrow down that time frame a little more when a tip came through from a woman with some information related to this. I lived in the Willow Ridge Apartments for a few years, and I was living there as a stay-at-home mom on February 26, 2014. And I had a routine with my son. I didn't have a car or anything, so I was almost always there. And I would always put him down for a nap time, anywhere from 11 to like one or two. And I had 
just put, I had put him down for a nap and he had fallen asleep and he was sleeping under a window in the back bedroom when I was sitting in my living room and I clearly heard a loud gunshot, which honestly living in Meridian, I would hear gunshots somewhat frequently, but this one really startled me because I could tell it was very close by. I actually thought that maybe it was in the parking lot of the apartment complex. So I rushed into the back bedroom and I took him away from the window just in case, kind of that mom panic when something big happens. And I took him into the bathroom um, in the bottom story, which would be the one room without windows. And I just stayed there for a little bit until I didn't hear anything for a while. And then about an hour to two hours later, which was around three when we always would go and check the mail. And the mailboxes weren't at the office, but they were closer to the office and I would often stop by the office apartment uh, for the apartment just to say hi to the staff since we kind of you know knew each other. So I checked our mail and then I went to the office and I said, hey, did you guys hear that gunshot? Really startled me. And one of the ladies working there said that she had heard it too. Their office was actually further away than my apartments would have been. So I, I guess they didn't hear it quite as clearly as I did, but she acknowledged that she heard it. And so I assumed that they had called the police, but I guess they didn't. And I didn't realize that until the next day when one of the maintenance crews saw me checking the mail again. And he stopped me and said, hey, you remember that gunshot I heard? I guess a few apartments down from you, um, there was a suicide. And that was the last I heard about anything relating to this for like a couple years. So where exactly was your apartment? Like, like how close was it to Christian's? I would have been to the right if you're looking at his front door. So I would have been on the same side of the street and it would have been just a few, they're kind of townhouses, but there's no apartments on top. And so I would have been just a few apartments down on the same side of the street in a different building. Okay, so would you feel comfortable giving an exact time that you heard the shot? Or like, what would be your best guess? So my son would have been fallen asleep. So, I mean, I, I honestly, I can't say 100%, but my best guess would, it would have been 1230-ish, noonish. No one ever contacted me at all. I was there all day. No one ever contacted me. Rather than give an exact time, I'd like to suggest a window for the time of death. Arden says hours before the 911 call was placed at 445. And while the woman who heard the shot said that 1230 noonish would be her best guess for when she heard it, she could say with certainty that at the bare minimum, an hour had passed, likely two hours, when she went to check the mail around 3 p.m. To err on the safe side, working with Arden's conclusion, along with this woman's tip, I'd suggest that the window for Christian's time of death would be between 12 p.m. and 2 p.m., which is about two to four hours before the original time of death. That time disparity can make a world of difference when paired with the accounts given by Whitley and Dylan. But the tricky part is discerning just how much of a difference it makes. Because while we know of several events that supposedly took place that day, for the most part, we don't have times to back them. A couple of things we do, like Dylan's trip to the bank around 12.30 and Chick-fil-A around 1. 
But the same cannot be said for the majority of the events that were mentioned, like the movies they watched in the apartment, the naps they took, Christian and Whitley's trip to the park, and Dylan's second trip out to Best Buy. It's possible these things didn't even happen, but if we take their word for it and assume that these things did happen, we have no way of knowing when, because they were never asked to give times for anything, which is astounding. What I'm saying here is, an earlier time of death cannot explain what exactly happened that day, but it certainly brings their alibis into question, and it offers a lot of different scenarios and possibilities to consider. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Let's go ahead and revisit Dylan's alibi once more, this time through his interview that we acquired from investigators. Here it is. When you guys actually got back to the house that day, we went around to go over the timelines up there. If you don't, you can follow along with it. But I just want you to tell me, you know, as much as you remember, what you saw, what you heard, any activity, because obviously there was nothing going on to lead you to believe that Christian was going to go shoot himself. Nothing. The only thing that he done out the ordinary is when he pointed the gun to his head. Mm-hmm. But to be honest with you, I thought that was a scare tactic to her. Right. Because he wanted to be in control of the relationship. And like, that's the only thing I can get out of him, pointing the gun to his head. That's but that's the whole reason I yeah. took the gun from him, because I've never seen him do it. Right. You know, like, see somebody do something like that, you know what I'm saying, like him. Like, he was always, like, the happy-go-lucky dude. Like, he always... When we would go to the beach and stuff, he was always the one making everyone laugh and stuff. And like, I never saw that side of him when he done it, when he pointed the gun to his head. And it's mostly because of her. She got his mind screwed up. I told him a bunch of times to leave her alone. Uh-huh. He wouldn't listen to me. But I mean, I wasn't the only one that told him that. He just, like, he said, do you love me? And she didn't say anything to him. He said, he said one more time a little bit louder. She didn't say nothing back to him. And he said, like, real loud, he said, do you love me? And you hear him clocking her. 
like the hammer back or whatever, and he stuck it to his head. And I was like, no, I ain't never seen nothing like that. You know, I've never seen him act like so hostile. And that's kind of what threw me off. And then she jumped up and said yes. And then she like tried to grab at it, but you know, he kind of like moved his arm back so she couldn't touch it. But she was so damn messed up on drugs. Like, I don't see how she comprehend anything. Right. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Because, like, whenever he'd be out on the boat, he like, he always made this remark. He said, well, I've only been out here two weeks. She's about to start screwing up. Like, he, it doesn't matter what she did. He always caught her and stuff. But, like, it was nothing for them to argue and yell and scream and fight and fuss, and they'd be fine an hour later. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, the babysitter. He always would ask me to check on her, see what she's doing. And like one night, she was texting the guy. This is a long time ago. She was texting the guy, and the guy told Christian, like he kind of gave him a heads up. And like, I don't know if it was like by accident, because I just remember Christian was like, hey man, he called me at three o'clock in the morning. He said, will you ride past her house and see if anyone's there? I got out of bed and I drove past with nobody there. And I, you know, I went around the lake one more time. I was like, you know, nobody's there. So when I come back around towards her house again, I was like, I'm going to look one more time, you know. I drove by. wasn't nobody there. Well, I don't know how he found this out. I couldn't find out the boy that was supposed to be over there and drove his truck down the dirt road that she lived on, parked it, and walked to the house. It's just she had a bunch of problems. Like, she was really conniving. Like, she didn't care about him. Like, a bunch of statements she said, like, made it obvious. She would say, like, my boyfriend makes 6000 a month. What am I worried about? Like, all she was worried about was a dollar. That's all that mattered. I mean, I don't care what anybody says. Oh, she loved it. No, she didn't. No, we know, that. we know that's all she cared about. She did not. No doubt about that. When you guys got back to the house, and I, and I, I, I really stress any, any little details, because there's so much information out there that you can, as we go through this thing, that might help us figure out what all happened. We know she was stealing his money. She was having a Western Union out of his account when he, he didn't know about till there at the very end. She was taking bill money that him and his brother were leaving for her to pay the rent and she wasn't two months behind on rent. Um, when you guys got back from Santa Rosa, um, of course you drove up there, you drove straight home, you stopped, got some gas like you said, and put some fuel in the vehicle, and got some drinks. Did he say anything? I mean, was he... He brought up the money thing about, you know, I want you to have all my money. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, he says that you can tell when he's joking and when he's being serious, but like he always joked about stuff. So I was like, you know, he's just you know, messing around. I was like, man, you're crazy. And then like, we just changed the subject. It was like, you know, we was talking about houses in the Philippines. We was always joking. He was like, man, we're going to go there, buy us a house, have us a, a beautiful Philippine woman. What are you going to do in the Philippines? You can buy a house that's cheap. Man. I know. Like that's what we started talking about after he said the money. So like he was just a dead subject. You know, we, he never brought it back up until like after they started arguing and stuff. Like in my statement, you can see that I left the first time to go get food, and he wanted me to get this phone fixed that he had broke. You know, see if they could fix it. Now he broke and, that when y'all got back. Yeah, like when they were arguing, it was a little while into the argument, but mm-hmm. like they had the door closed, and you know I was just minding my business. I didn't want to get in there and argument or anything. Right. And like the first thing she said. When, I, when she saw me walk in behind him, she said, what the F is he doing here? But the thing is, like, what throws me off is like certain parts, she was so alert, but then certain parts, she was just so sluggish. Like, it just didn't make sense to me. Like, when they were arguing, he was yelling, so I could hear what he was saying. 
And she wouldn't say anything because she knew she was caught. Everything that he was talking about, she knew. And um, they were arguing back and forth, back and forth. And then, like, they had the door closed, and then you just hear a thump. And then he just opened the door a few minutes later, and he just had the phone in the hand smiling. Because he knew, like, I work on like I work on cell phones. He was like, you know, fix this. And uh, anyway, they're still arguing or whatever after that. And I was like, you know, I'm going to give y'all some long, long time. You know, I don't want to be in y'all's way where y'all are arguing. I said, do you, you want me to go get some food or something? He was like, yeah. And he gave me his card. And, like, we was talking about it. And then that's when he brought the money up again. He was like, I want you to take my money out. And I was like, for what? You know, like, that's the only thing that I didn't understand. Like, why did he want me to have this money? But I knew in the back of my mind, they wasn't going to let me touch that money because I wasn't him. Right. You can't just go in and say, oh, this is my friend. I want his money. You can't do it. So I knew it wasn't going to do it. But, you know, I was just like, whatever. I was like, you know, well, he gives me his card, and, you know, he handed me the phone. Before that, there was a whole money talk thing. And he was like, you know, go to the bank first, and then go to AT&T, and then get the food, so the food won't be cold. I said, all right. So I leave, and I get to the bank, and I told him, you know, I was like, hey, my buddy wants me to take his money out for him. Uh, you see, he sent me text messages of his information. Yeah, I was like, uh, well, when I texted him, when I got there, I said, you know, I'm here. If you really want to do this, it's up to you. And he's like, yeah. And he sent me all this information. And then I called him back, and I was like, dude, you know, I knew they weren't going to let me. I was like, man, they're not going to take your money out. They told me I couldn't. And he was like, well, you know, whatever, whatever. Like, he wasn't stressing it. He was just like, you know, I'll do it later or something. Well, I got an AT&T, and, like, there's this long line. And, like, since I work on them, I know what to look for. And, like, I started thinking about it, and I plugged it up to one of the little chargers up there. And, like, he was stuck in the bootloading, like, where the apple comes on, and then it cut back off, and I knew what was wrong. It was the battery. So I left there, and when I went to Chick-fil-A, I actually had a buddy that saw me. Like, I stopped and parked and talked to him for a second before I got the food. I got the food. I go back to them, and uh, it's, it's, like, calm when I get there. You know, like, there's no arguing. She's passed out on the couch. He's sitting on the couch beside her. I bring all the food in, and we, like, start separating the food and all that. And, um... She was just sitting there acting like, you know, I don't want to eat, I don't want to eat. So she took her food and her drink, and, like, there's a counter behind the, like, the couch. Mm -hmm. She just put her stuff up there, and he kind of looked at her weird. He's like, eat your food. And then she said something. It wasn't, like, nothing crazy. She said something. He was like, stop being a bitch, you know, eat your food. And basically, like, we ate, and, you know, they didn't say anything. I started to lay down. Well, somehow they had managed to get into the bedroom. And I don't know if maybe they were talking or arguing, but I started to doze off. And when I started to doze off, I noticed that Christian was walking out the bed, the bedroom door, and she was right behind him. I kind of opened my eyes. I said, where are y'all going? He said, we're going to take a little ride. Now, I fell asleep. I don't know how long I slept. Like, I don't know how long they had been back. But when I woke up, he was at the foot of my, like, the couch where I was sleeping. He was at my feet. And he was just acting normal, you know, just smoking a cigarette, just kind of standing at the TV because we had a movie going. But he was like, at the, you know, when a movie's over, to sit there and keep playing the whole front thing. It's like he was just watching that, smoking a cigarette. Well, she was passed out in the bed. You know, we talked for like a brief minute. Like, it wasn't that long. Like, I can't tell you exactly how long. But I mean, you know, it's like, you know, how long have I been asleep? And I was like, no, blah, blah. I was like, well, I'm going to go to Best Buy and look at some subs. I was like, you need anything while I'm out? No, man, I'm all right. Well, you know, he's acting normal. I go to Best Buy. I'm sitting there, and I go back to the speakers, and uh, there's a guy named I used to work at Best Buy, so I knew all the people up there. Right. I was talking to about speakers, 
and you know he was kind of telling me what I you know what I needed, what amp I needed, and all that stuff. Well, I started to leave, and I saw another dude named and it's like the security man. He like watches all the cameras and stuff like that. I talked to him for a minute, and then that's when I headed back. But when I got back, I opened the door, and I noticed he wasn't on the couch. I was like, all right, you know, maybe they fix things, you know, because like, like I said, if they argued, but they'd be fine in an hour. Mm -hmm. I said, maybe they fix things, and you know, he's laying in the bed with her. So I walked in there, she's passed out on the bed. He's not in there. And I was like, you know, maybe he's in his brother's, you know, his brother's room is upstairs. I believe that's his brother's room, mm -hmm. the one that go upstairs, that bedroom. Yeah. I was like, maybe he's up there laying on that bed. So I walked up there, I didn't see him. Well, I noticed the bathroom light was on. So I kind of knocked on the door. I said, you all right? You straight? Cause like, you know, I was yelling this thing, you know, I was like, Christian, Christian, where you at? Where you at? Well, you know, she ain't even moved. Whitley still laid out on the bed. I said, Christian, Christian, you know, answer me, you know, but that's why I was walking through the house. Like, but, you know, I knocked on the bathroom door. I said, you all right? You didn't say nothing to me. I knocked again, just a little bit harder. I was like, you okay? You didn't say nothing to me. I was like, yeah, that's weird, you know, like maybe he's, you know, maybe he's taking a shower or something, you know, like maybe he's just doing something he can't hear. So I walked downstairs. I went to Whitley, I was like, Whitley, he didn't say nothing to me. You know, like, he's not answering me. I was like, we need to check on him. Well, like, this is what blows my mind. Whitley was like, I guess, dead asleep, I'm assuming, because like, I kind of shook her a little bit, she didn't move, I said, Whitley. And I shook her, and that's when I said, we need to check on him. She didn't say nothing, she just said, you know, like, mumbled, and she kind of rolled over and like, went back to sleep. That's when I walked back up there, and you know, I knocked on the door a little bit harder at the time, and said, Christian, you okay in there? And say nothing to him. I was like, man, so it's, you know, something ain't right. So I'm like a little bit harder. I said, Christian, are you all right in there? He didn't say nothing back to me. I was like, man, I got to check on him. When I opened the door, I looked like my head was down and I could see his boots. And I looked up, he was hunched over the bathtub. And I knew, that, I knew he wasn't alive, just the way he was just sitting there. And like, he, what, what blew my mind, like I had mental images of this, like, the first like two weeks, every single night when I get to sleep, I see his arms behind his back. He didn't add up to me. Take a minute, take a minute. You're doing good. You are. I want to know what happened to my buddy. You know, I want to know, like, it's, it's like emotionally traumatizing knowing that I won't get in my truck one day and drive past the beach and see him down there. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's crazy because like, that was one of my buddies. Like I lost a friend in 2011 and it sent me into like this downward spiral. I was like, man, you know, why'd he have to go? Why'd he have to go? And then like, that one hit me hard, but Christian hit me even harder because of how close me and him was, you know? Like, that was like my running buddy. Like, I didn't do anything while he was out on the boat. And when he got back from the boat, all we did was just go to the beach, you know, just small stuff like get on the boat. But I mean, like after doing that for so long, you know, just you get like small memories from it, and like it just tears you up. You know, knowing you'll never be able to talk to your buddy again. You know, it's like family. I mean, it really was. So we're gonna we're gonna find out what happened though. And I can tell you this right now: don't make shot yourself on purpose. I will give her this: she did play a hell of a role. If that is what happened. With the whole sleeping deal and the crying and stuff, but I knew when she sat down to smoke that cigarette, I knew those wasn't real tears.
Regardless of what you believe happened on February 26th, there is no doubt that Dr. Arden's conclusion on the time of death lends a different way of looking at this. And I believe the science did make some sort of impact in this case, based on what followed shortly after the release of Knox and Arden's reports. In January 2017, a judge issued arrest warrants for Whitley and Dillon for murder. Detective Jay Arrington with MPD helped get the warrant signed. Of course, Ray and Todd were relieved because it seemed that finally some resolution would come from all this. But after several days and several calls to police, nothing was happening. No arrests were made. Eventually, it was explained to Ray that they were not going to serve the warrants, that a decision had been made to instead let the case go to a grand jury, which meant Bilbo, the DA, would present the case. But before it ever made it to a jury, Bilbo recused himself from the case. On February 22, 2017, Bilbo sent his recusal letter to the Attorney General's office, which meant that he would no longer be required to enforce any legal action in the case. The responsibility of presenting the case to a jury would fall into the hands of the Attorney General's office. And shortly after this, in October of 2017, the case was presented to a jury, and the case was no-billed meaning the charges were not sufficiently supported by the evidence presented to warrant prosecution. The no-bill was not made known to the Andriacchios, who found out after the fact through the rumblings of some other people who caught wind of the news. Here's Ray and her brother Chris's take on the matter. Really, Bilbo does not control the police department. How it's supposed to work is the police department is supposed to do their job, make arrests, the DA does not control who they arrest and who they don't arrest. Typically, all of that is done, and the DA is never involved, and then they take that information once the arrest is made, then the investigation is given to the DA to determine if it's going to go to the grand jury or be prosecuted or whatever. And I've talked to several people who have been on a grand jury here, and that's kind of how they say you can definitely tell what he wants to be indicted and what he wants to be no-billed. And nine times out of ten, that's how they go. They don't question it. They just vote to go that way because he's telling them, you know, we don't have enough to ever win this case. And from what I've been told, quite frankly, that's legal. I mean, unless you just prove that, which would be almost impossible to do because grand jurors won't talk to you. But, I mean, that's just how the system is. This whole secret system of a grand jury, we're in Mississippi or in Lauderdale County, there's no court reporter. There's totally no record of what goes on in that grand jury. We told them we would pay for a court reporter for just Christian's part. They said couldn't do it. It was secret what goes on. You know, we asked if we could just do a tape recorder and tape it. Nope, it's secret. You can't know. We asked could we speak to the grand jury. Nope, can't do that. That's not allowed. Actually, it can be allowed. They have vast leeway. It says in the law that, you know, they can call witnesses. They can do anything they want. They could have let us talk to the grand jury if they wanted to, but no, we're going to do that. How often do you know that warrants are going to be issued for the arrest of two people and a DA says, no, let's indict them first? Well, how are you going to indict them if you never question them? And they did put the uh, case up for indictment to the grand jury. He recused himself, said he was too close to Christian. That was his public statement. What people need to realize is, it took him three years and a lot of pressure for him to recuse himself 
and he tried to explain it away like it was just, you know, that was the right thing to do. Well, if it was the right thing to do, and it was that big of a, and he was that close to Christian, he should have recused himself three years earlier. That was a, a political move, and that was all it was to it. Once the indictment is made, it is up to the DA whether or not they offer a plea deal or not. When you have lawyers tell you that are friends of mine to tell you that they're representing criminals, a defense attorney tells me that he's sitting there with his client and the DA comes in and makes a, a plea deal, makes an offer. Hey, you plead guilty, we'll give you 15 years. And his client tells him no. The DA walks out of the room and he turns around and says, are you crazy? You should get 25 years and they're willing to give you 15. And the criminal looks at him and says, everybody knows that's Bilbo's first offer. He'll come back with less. When the criminals know that, you've got problems. The day that Bilbo retired, I don't know if it'll get any better in that DA's office, but Meridian may not realize it, but it was a good day for Meridian as far as crimes being punished. He's got a great record. It's my understanding he's got a great conviction record. But when you're making deals like that, I can understand why. Very rarely is there a just a full-blown trial in Meridian. If it is, the public doesn't know about it. It's not in the papers. It's not on the news and things. Every once in a while, there'll be a full-blown trial. Some people say that's a waste of taxpayers' money. I think you're taking justice out of the public's hands the way our system was designed. You're taking that out of their hands and putting it in the hands of one person, the DA. That's way too much power. In October of 2018, after 31 years of service, Bilbo Mitchell retired as district attorney and his assistant DA, Cassie Coleman, was appointed by Governor Phil Bryant per Bilbo's recommendation. But before we break away from Bilbo, I'd like to go back and hit on something I mentioned earlier, the letter he wrote recusing himself from Christian's case. I'm going to read it in its entirety. This letter is written by Bilbo Mitchell, addressed to Attorney General Jim Hood. Dear Jim, I am in need of your help again. There is a case here in Meridian that needs to be presented to a grand jury, and I feel that our office has a conflict of interest that has been created by the deceased's family. Christian Andriacchio died of a gunshot wound to the head a few years ago. The death was originally investigated by the Meridian Police Department, who ruled that the death was the result of a suicide. The case was then investigated by Trent Weeks and the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, who also ruled that the case was a suicide. Danny Welch, from your office, was also involved in the investigation and should be knowledgeable of the facts of the case. Christian's family never accepted the suicide findings and feel that Christian was murdered. They have gone as far as hiring private investigators, doctors, and other experts from around the country in an effort to prove that this wasn't a suicide. There are a number of reasons that our office should not handle the presentation of this case to a grand jury. 
Number one, the family has expressed the opinion that the Meridian Police Department and I are trying to cover up or protect someone who they think killed Christian. Number two, I coached Christian in soccer when he was a young man and became acquainted with the family during that time. Number three, Christian's mother was my son's nurse practitioner at Psychology Associates. Hayes made the comment to her that he knew Christian didn't kill himself. Hayes meant that as a consoling comment, but she used that comment to say that my son knows something and I'm covering it up to protect someone. Number four, Christian's grandfather is our justice court judge who we have to work with on occasion. And number five, I'm attaching a letter that Christian's mother wrote to the Meridian Police Department questioning my integrity in dealing with this case. Because of all of these things, there is no way the family will ever be satisfied if the grand jury returns the suicide opinion if the case is presented by my office. General, I have worked on this case as hard as any I've ever had. My relationship with Christian made me want to be sure that every rock was upturned. I have read the file over and over. I have talked to MPD and MBI investigators. I have talked to the pathologist and first responders, and I've even driven all the way to Jacksonville, Florida to talk to private investigators that have been hired by the family. All of my efforts still show that this was a suicide. It's frustrating that the family doesn't trust me, but that is a fact that isn't going to change. My request is that you ask Danny Welch or some other investigator to review our file, and that you appoint Stanley or some other attorney to present the case to a grand jury here in Meridian. Thank you for your consideration of my request. Yours truly, Bilbo Mitchell. Bilbo listed many reasons as to why he felt his office should not handle the presentation of Christian's case, that he used to coach Christian in soccer, that Christian's grandfather is a circuit court judge, and he also mentions the family's belief that he and MPD were actively trying to cover up or protect someone. He also attached a letter Ray wrote, questioning his integrity dealing with the case. But one reason he listed that stood out to me was the one he gave which referenced his son. His reason was, quote, Christian's mother was my son's nurse practitioner at Psychology Associates. Hayes made the comment to her that he knew Christian didn't kill himself. Hayes meant that as a consoling comment, but she used that comment to say that my son knows something and I'm covering it up to protect someone. While Ray cannot share what all Hayes said to her about the case due to patient confidentiality, I think I have an idea as to what it may have been about because Ray wasn't the only person that Hayes Mitchell shared information with regarding the death of Christian Andriacchio. It was the day of crew change. We were on the motor vessel, Kelly Lee. That was the boat we worked on. We were standing in the deck locker. It was evening time, right when I was waking up from my evening shift, and he was happened to be working that night. He started talking about the, the incident with, with Christian. This is all what Hayes told me.
Culpable is a production of Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13. Executive producers are Dennis Cooper, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, and me, Mark Minery. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are considering starting a podcast of your own, I urge you to check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Theme music and score by Dirt Poor Robbins. Cover art by Drew Bardana. I want to extend a special thanks to Mike Hines, Sheila Wysocki, and Lance Black. You can follow us on social media at Copable Podcast. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, copablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information related to the death of Christian Andriacchio, please email us at tips at blackmountainmedia.net or call us at 470-300-4915. Thank you for listening and tune in for new episodes every Monday.